A warning before we get into this week's episode. This podcast contains graphic depictions of child sexual assault, as well as discussions of suicide. If you need help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. If you or someone you know is impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence, call 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732. Or you can visit 1800RESPECT.org.au. In an emergency, call triple zero. We've also put some links to support in our show notes. I'm quite comfortable talking about it because the one thing that I believed and taught myself years ago was that it's not my fault. It is never the child's fault. And when I was 11 years old, I was going to St. Olympia School, that's in Ballarat East, one of the most notorious schools in Australia. And the principal there was Brother Robert Best. Stephen Woods was a perfectly normal kid growing up in rural Victoria in the 1970s. A roll of the dice differently here or there, and perhaps things might have panned out otherwise. As it was, however, he spent years stuck in one of the most notorious Catholic schools in the country, being preyed upon by one of our most vicious pedophiles, the school's principal, Brother Robert Best. And he had this habit of taking children into his office, and he would <coughs> have his way with them, doing whatever he wanted, literally. And what he used to do with me was get me to stand in front of his desk and I would have to slowly strip my clothes off for him all the time he was masturbating behind the desk. Hi, I'm Monique Patterson, a reporter for The Warnable Standard. A few years ago I wrote a book called The Boy in the Presbytery about Paul Levy and his decades-long quest to lift the pall of silence surrounding child sexual abuse by Catholic clergy. I wrote that book for the same reason I made this podcast, to give survivors a voice. Survivors were told by leaders of the church for many, many years to stay silent, made to feel that it was somehow their fault, that they were evil, and that if they were ever told anyone about the abuse, something bad would happen to them or to their families. So for this episode of Voice of Real Australia, I'm going to tell you what happened and show you how it affected the community all those decades ago when these terrible crimes were committed. Stephen is 60 years old now. For decades he's lived with the invisible scars of the cruelty wrought upon him by brother Robert Best. He would also, and this is the part that really bit into my life, into my psyche, was that he would tell me that I was bad, I was evil, I deserve this. This is my fault. I've been very bad. You are going to be nothing in life. You are nothing. You are worthless. And everything along those lines, he would tell me that while I had to strip for him. Stephen was sent to another school, but he wasn't safe there either. And this is one thing that really um, characterised the Christian brothers in Victoria was the perpetual violence that they acted out of on the victims because the next pedophile who got me at the next school was Brother Edward Dowlin. And I had known him from St. Olympias, although he didn't molest me there. But the next year at St. Patrick's College, he would 
had this propensity for sending kids down at the back of the class. After sending a class to work, he would threaten anyone who turned around. And boy, you were scared because, again, he was extremely violent. He would he would use the strap. He would hit you like, like Brother Best. He would punch you, hit you across the head. At any time, at any, at any moment, you were literally fearful of being hit or punched. And when you're a kid, you know, being hit or punched by an adult, being strapped by an adult is just outrageous. Stephen is normal, tragically so. It's taken him decades to get there, to come to terms with his experience. He's one of the lucky survivors. Countless other victims have succumbed to addiction and suicide over the years, the lingering trauma being too much to bear. Grew up in Ballarat, went to um, St Olympia's girls' school for the first few years till grade two, and then the Christian Brothers further down the street from grade three to grade six, then to St. Patrick's College. This is Tony Wardley. He grew up in Ballarat in the 1970s at around the same time as Stephen Woods. The first time I was sexually abused was by a nun. Can't actually remember whether it was grade one or two, but I'm not comfortable going into the details of that, but that's where it all started. And then. Grade three had uh, Fitzgerald. He was a prolific pedophile and um, a vicious one at that. Had no trouble groping and kissing and fondling boys at the front of the class. Pulled different ones up at different times. Yeah, and very violent as well to keep control over you. Then um, grade five, I, I don't know what happened to grade five, but I have no memory of grade five whatsoever. Grade six had um, Best. He was another pedophile and he was a, another one that used violence and didn't care what he did in front of the students. Fondling your ass and that while you're reading out the front. They just um, were a law to themselves. So, so no child in those circumstances goes unaffected, even if they weren't physically touched because they're seeing others being molested all the time. And any day that you weren't touched was a good day. But the anxiety that you were going to be the next one always there. It must have been terrifying the thought of going to school every day. Exactly. It was very hard to get to school. A lot of times, you know, you just couldn't get hide somewhere and wag it and just wouldn't go because those teachers were around the whole school time. So if you weren't in their class, it didn't mean you were safe. They were always, um, always um, looking for a victim. I grew up in Koroit, which is right near Warrnambool, a couple of hours southwest of Ballarat. My grandmother was a staunch Catholic, and I went to a Catholic primary school. We were taught to show priests respect. They were treated like royalty. 
Tony tells me it was exactly the same for him. The church brainwashes you from when they baptise you from then on, so right through your development as a child and, yeah, you, there's seen no out of it, you know. You, um, there's no one to talk to about it. Parents more than often would uh, take the priest's side or the brother's side, so, yeah, there's no escape from it. What I wanted to ask you is... um. I believe that the church is full of contradictions and a lot of the things in the Bible and, you know, what you taught at church, even when I used to go to church, was you have songs like come as you are and do to others as you would like to be done to yourself. That's not the exact saying, but and be compassionate, be kind to your fellow man. But compassion, kindness, are they typical words that you would use to describe some of the nuns and brothers that taught you at school? Definitely not. No, <laughs> um, no, straight to the point. And, uh, this is my dad, John Patterson. Probably very strict and uh, sometimes very angry little ladies they were. Uh, he grew up in a world not dissimilar from Tony and Stevens, a world of devotion to the Catholic Church and one in which the institution held a huge amount of power over the lives of its small-town parishioners, my family. Over the years, the church has had a lot of its moral authority corroded by crimes and cover-ups, though it's difficult for us to imagine the absolute authority of the Catholic Church of years past. But Dad remembers. I was born in Hamilton, went to a school called St Mary's. He had a tough upbringing in Hamilton, in the rural far west of Victoria. His dad, my grandfather, was violent. Cops would warn my grandma to get out of the house when they'd spotted him staggering home from the pub. But when she chose to leave him, divorce him, she was shunned by the church and the community and her family. Dad has strong memories of the indoctrination he experienced at the hands of the Catholic Church. We were pretty well taught about uh God and, you know, having to go to church prior to school. But we didn't know a lot about why we were believing, you know, what uh, our grandparents and mum were telling us. But then once we got to school, the nuns very, well, I would call it very intelligently, they worked out a way, I'm sure, of integrating the... uh, education of us to exactly show how religion is really a dominant force in our lives. Dad recalls the nuns convincing him at an early age that the only way his soul would be saved was through the Catholic Church. They all explained that the fact about the sacraments for a start, or sacrament first of all about baptism, They had found out when we uh, entered school that everyone in the class I was in, at least, had been baptised in the Catholic Church. And we were absolutely told that the only ones that could enter heaven were 
Catholics that were baptised in the Catholic Church by a Catholic priest. Dad wasn't abused himself, and the weight of silence surrounding abuse at the time was so great that he only ever heard whispers and rumours of what was going on. When the crimes of priests he knew growing up were revealed, however, he wasn't surprised at all. Usually by then, the priest had gained a hell of a lot of confidence from the parents. He, he not only groomed the children, he groomed the parents to be good friends and have Sunday lunch after mass there and say that, oh, I can take the kids out on a fishing trip and take, take them away on a camp and all that sort of stuff. And the parents thought, oh, this is great, you know. We know the most important person in our community. And in those days, Catholic people, and still Catholic people, always consider a priest as the most important person in the community because the people who still believe in the Catholic religion still believe, and that's what we were taught, that a priest is a representative of God. So how much more important can you get than that? I think some people had their good room in the house, which was only used if the priest came for dinner. Yeah, yeah, I knew people like that, but it wasn't exclusive to the priest. You know, I think if the Queen had walked in, she might have been given that room too. But Oh, maybe she was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> With so much community faith in the priests, there was really nowhere the kids could turn. A lot of people say, why, why don't the kids, why didn't the kids report it at the time? Now, I know for a fact, and you you would know more than me, I think, because you've studied a bit about it, a lot of these kids did tell their parents and they would say, oh, Johnny, don't don't tell lies about father or such and such. You know, he wouldn't do that. You know, you, you probably dreamt it, you know, and woke up and started believing it. So, you know, and they'd say, oh, anyway, we heard he's, he's been transferred to another, another diocese anyway. Tony didn't tell anyone about what happened to him as a kid for years and years. During the Royal Commission, he was known only as Witness BAA until 2016 when he revealed his identity. Fifteen years earlier, he approached the church for help. I just couldn't cope anymore. I went to the Catholic Church to see if they paid for some counselling, psychologists and that. Yeah, that just made things worse. They were only interested in getting whatever evidence they were and that, and then offered me five counselling sessions. So, you know, um, over 50 years of the trauma and they wanted to get rid of me with five counselling sessions. This is after um, they had some fellow organised meeting with me and a rented office space in Lydian Street, Ballarat. All he wanted to know was all the details and that. There was no support there. There was no compassion. It was just looking after their business. See whether my stories checked out or whatever. But they were only interested in covering their ass, not in helping me to live as near a normal life as a The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse found that the greatest number of alleged perpetrators and abused children were in Catholic institutions. Commissioners heard from 8,000 survivors and more than 1,000 additional victims wrote in their stories. Between 1980 and 2015, 
there were 4,756 reported claims of sexual abuse in a Catholic institution. After the commission, the Australian Catholic Church released a statement saying that they take full responsibility for the harm caused by the tragic history of child sexual abuse by clergy, religious and lay church workers. The church is committed to continuing to work with those harmed by sexual abuse to bring justice, to seek a path for healing, restore trust where possible, and to help ensure that children and vulnerable people are cared for and protected. A national redress scheme was set up, but a number of child abuse survivors have criticised the process, saying the interviews are akin to an interrogation. A lot of the people were telling their stories at the Royal Commission. It was really evident to me that a lot of people in Ballarat were incredibly shocked. They 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 were just so surprised. They had no idea. You know, they were totally blindsided by this, myself included. Moore's Hatcher grew up in Ballarat in the 70s. She says she never had any idea these crimes were being committed until the Royal Commission began in 2013 and the story started to flow out. So many, especially the the guys that spoke out, so many of those, I mightn't have known them personally, but I certainly knew of their families because of, you know, the whole church parish type thing. And when we were younger, we would have all mixed it, things like parish picnics and those sorts of events. But we had no idea, you know, I... Absolutely no idea. We were one block away at the girls' school and we were having a lovely time, really. We just did not have any idea. And the boys would be with us until grade two and then they would go to the Christian Brothers School block away for grades three, four, five and six. And then when I was in grade six, They closed the boys' school and the boys came back to us. When those boys returned from the Christian Brothers' school, they seemed different. And when they came back to us, hindsight, of course, they they were angry. You know, there was a lot of aggression and I suppose as young girls, we just thought that must be what boys are like when they're all together. We didn't think anything of it. We just thought we knew they were angry. There were lots of physical fights in the schoolyard most days, lots of, you know, really full-on behaviour really. And, again, we just thought that must be what they're like. So I suppose when we started hearing all those stories at the Royal Commission, it just dawned on so many of us, oh, my God, that's that's what they'd been through or seen or been part of. So it made sense. There's always a reason for people's behaviour and it was so evident. Moores is the founder of the Loud Fence movement. When stories about kids she grew up with and knew at school emerged through the Royal Commission, Moores says she wanted to do something to show solidarity. And a lot of people I was talking to were saying things like, we feel so helpless, what can we do, what can we do? 
she, along with her former classmates, started tying brightly coloured ribbons to the fence of the former boys' school, where a lot of the crimes were committed. And ribbons had already started appearing at St Pat's College and a few of us that had gone to the St Alipius Girls' School just had a bit of a chat on Messenger and thought that ribbons should go up at the former Christian Brothers' School. So that's really how it started. So to me... That was the fence that I called loud fence. Amazingly, that sort of grassroots sort of thing happened and the community just rolled with it and then every fence that had ribbons on it was sort of called a loud fence. So it it really sort of happened organically. I never would have thought that six years later that Facebook page would still be going and we'd still would have had Loud Fence trademarked and would now be an incorporation. There was no thought of that whatsoever. It was really just a show of support for those brave people that had spoken out. It's since turned into a worldwide movement. Loud Fences have appeared outside Catholic churches and schools in dozens of countries. But even after the global reckoning with the church's crimes, Moore says the church still has yet to properly atone for them. Look, I still think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I suppose what shocked and surprised so many of us was as soon as the Royal Commission recommendations came out the week of, St Patrick's Cathedral asked their parishioners to cut all the ribbons off the fence just before Christmas, which is really a tough time for so many survivors anyway. But it was almost like, okay, Royal Commission's done, stories are out, recommendations are out, let's sweep it all under the carpet and forget it never, you know, forget it happened. And I think that was pretty telling. It was also telling that as they cut all the ribbons down and took them around to the back of the cathedral, there was, you know, a huge mob of people at the front tying them back up. So, um I would like to think the church has learnt some lessons from it, but I'm not seeing it. Dad is a lapsed Catholic these days, particularly since the priest wouldn't marry him and my mum unless she converted. Absolutely. I had blind faith up until I would imagine probably till I was about 30, I reckon. I still thought I'd have to get married in the Catholic church and Luckily, uh, well, there's a couple of priests wouldn't marry Jackie. Jackie didn't want to turn Catholic, and it didn't worry me. But I did, I did insist on getting married in the Catholic Church. Still believing that if we didn't get married in the church, we wouldn't be married at all. But it wasn't long after when I started hearing about what these representatives of God were actually doing, you know, with the children. Dad's religious views are a little more nuanced these days than the nuns would have taught. I like to think they'd be appalled. He believes in God, possibly an afterlife, as well as the Big Bang, a universe which is billions of years old and is possibly, probably even, filled with other intelligent beings. So I do believe in a God, but it's just, to me, it's a superior something, being, call it. And... It's quite possible that there's an afterlife. Nobody knows, really. The 7,000 religions now, they're all trying to explain the unknown. And the unknown is how 
The Catholic Church was intimidating people into thinking, look, we're always there for you when there's a funeral, when you lose someone, we give you support and, you know, we're wonderful. And they are wonderful when that happens. You know, they are very supportive of people that are absolutely distraught, but that doesn't give them licence to do what they've been doing to little children. The good they've been doing is completely wiped out by the bad that they've been doing. And I tell people, yes, I was brought up a Catholic, but I am no longer a practising Catholic because of that. In 2011, Brother Robert Best, who abused Tony and Stephen, was sentenced to 14 years and nine months in jail for crimes against 11 boys over a 20-year period from the late 1960s at several Victorian schools. Six years later, Best pleaded guilty again to indecent assault charges against 20 boys who were mostly aged between 8 and 11 years old. Ted Dowlin, another of Stephen's abusers, was jailed in 1996 for sexually abusing 11 boys at four Christian Brothers schools. In 2015, he was jailed again after being convicted of abusing 20 boys. Gerald Leo Fitzgerald, one of Tony's alleged abusers, died in 1987 while being investigated, but was never charged. Tony tells me that despite these and countless other convictions, the Catholic Church has only ever been interested in covering its ass, not in providing genuine, compassionate care to its victims. He's had some help over the years from other sources, including the Centre Against Sexual Assault, and he's grateful for it. I ended up going to Carves or Ballarat, they had a men's group and would have meetings and no one was talking about uh, what personally had happened to them but the similarities in the way we went through life was incredible you know a man of suicide attempts and rage and all those sort of things were so similar and having that um I suppose, companionship with people who knew what you were going through was incredibly helpful. And what has got you through the really dark times? I'm lucky my wife, yeah, I've been with her over 30 years um, and even then, you know, I've had attempts at suicide and that, but, yeah, she's still with me. that's the only grounding, really. And it would be nice if the Catholic Church showed a bit of compassion and gave decent offers to survivors well before they have to, instead of dragging it out, dragging it out, traumatising survivors for even longer. Moore says silence still dominates when it comes to child abuse by the Catholic Church. I still find it interesting that they very rarely make any comment about it or there's nothing ever come out in the media or they they created that little box out the back of the cathedral that looks a bit like a little black coffin which is again quite incredible to put all the ribbons in that come down off the fence but there's no plaque on it actually explaining what it is or anything so there's still that 
shield of silence, you know, around it all. And I think the only time that I've I've really even heard, you know, the local Catholic diocese speak about it is if the local paper has contacted them or if someone from the media has contacted them, they'll make a statement, but they've never sort of come out themselves. You know, they almost have to be pushed and I think that's devastating to a lot of people, survivors and families of victims, that there's just no acknowledgement there. Moores also believes that everyday Catholics are taking down the ribbons themselves, perhaps upset about what they see as undue criticism of their church. There's been a lot of pushback from parishioners over the years who take it very personally and see it as, you know, upsetting their brand, I suppose, and and often it has been sort of really aggressive parishioners that have taken them down. But we don't tend to hear why particularly. I think it is that they're quite protective of their church and I don't think they quite understand what the ribbons represent. They see it more as a, as a protest rather than a show of support and it's the show of support that is more meaningful for survivors because I hear that from them all the time. It's that public show of support that they've never had before. Despite some pushback, Moores is happy with the amount of support she's seen across the country and around the world. These loud fences are everywhere, from Armadale to America. They just keep popping up. I suppose the really big one was at the Vatican. That was something that I'd hoped for, but I heard from a few people that it would be incredibly difficult to do. And then a few years ago, I was actually away on holiday and I received the message from a supporter who happened to be over there holidaying and she just said, I don't want you to say my name, but here's the photo. So, yeah, I did a bit of a happy dance. That was that was pretty amazing to get those photos and have had those ribbons up there because I think that meant a lot to survivors. This story isn't over. The church hasn't atoned for its crimes and victims are still seeking justice and compensation. There are still people out there, Tony Wardley is convinced, who haven't come forward. I had that much bravado that it came where that loose sword. My parents who went to the church to complain were turned away. Don't be ridiculous, you know. Now, there's a lot more to come forward and taking in the perpetrators to court, criminal court, is satisfying until you find out their sentence. There's a lot of people out there that haven't come forward. I know that from that. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voice of real Australia. You can follow me on Twitter at Tom Melville124. 
Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Canberra Times on Ngunnawal country. Reporting this week by Monique Patterson, the show is produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our editor is Emily Sweet. Special thanks this week go to Greg Best and Paul Levy. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>